As for you, pursue righteousness. I don't know if Lutherans can say that. Because that sounds like works righteousness, doesn't it? Does that just tell you you have to be good in order to be saved? Isn't Christianity, I guess then, really about how you got to prove to God that you're better than you used to be? Isn't that what pursue righteousness means? Well, no. It's only if you're a fool. Only if you want to be under the law as opposed to believe what God has promised you, which is that you're under grace. Under grace, the law becomes not what it was. What it was, was something that only curbed you or killed you. It only broke you or kept you from going so far that you would break others. But under the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the law now becomes also a guide. And don't think of it as a guide in the sense of, I have to follow it. It's more like when you're lost and you need to find a way and you look at a map and it shows you where you want to go, and you have that moment, you're like, oh yeah, I can go that way now. That is the quote-unquote third use of the law. I'm not going to pretend that I can control it or make you have it work within you. I'm just going to tell you that when Paul says, pursue righteousness, he doesn't mean earn your salvation. He means love the fact that Jesus is your Savior. Love the fact that Jesus is your model as well. And don't let either of those two things ever be pitted against each other. He is both your Savior and your example. He is both your King and your friend. He is both the way you should go and the one who has gone before you. He is both the shepherd who will take you when you can't help yourself at all and the shepherd who will enliven you to help others. So to pursue righteousness is to pursue the truth that you are justified by grace, through faith, for Christ's sake, and so free to no longer need to justify yourself by what you do, and instead live as though the others around you actually matter for reasons that aren't just how you can use them to become more righteous. As for you, people of God, Pursue righteousness. That's what I'm asking you to do this day on our devotional commitment Sunday. If it's only as simple as right now in your heart saying to Jesus, Jesus, give me wisdom because you heard that's what Solomon asked for. And you heard Jesus say, ask and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. Then that's enough. I don't need you to mark down on those cards guilt offerings. That's not what it's for. It's there to be more like crutches. Or you know how you have a tree growing in the wind and you'll put the stakes in the tree and tie it to it so it grows straight. That's what those suggestions there are for. And yes, so I ask you, mark one down today and put it into practice at home. And if you slip and stumble and don't do it for a week, get back up and do it again because you're not earning nothing. You're just free to grow in grace. That is what Paul is telling Timothy to do in this letter to the young pastor who he left behind in Crete to set things in order while Paul went on on his missionary journeys. And as he's closing this letter, he sets up a distinction between false doctrine 
and good confession, which I want you to hear is the difference between foolishness and wisdom. There really is no difference there. And, and as we talk about then what false doctrine means here in a moment, I want you to try to do two things. I want you on the one hand to think of all the heretics of the ancient times, the anti-Trinitarians and the Patripassians and the Donatists. If you know that, great. They were fools. But I don't want you to think of doctrine only in those terms. Doctrine is not about rules in a book about what you're supposed to say to get into heaven. Doctrine is about truth that you can stand on even when the whole world is falling apart. And false doctrine, well, it's, it's like building a house on the sand. Yeah. 1 Timothy chapter 6, we're going to go from verse 2b all the way probably to the end of the chapter here. It starts on page 993 of your pew Bible. Of course, you've got your own Bible. That's even better. He starts by saying to Timothy, teach and urge these things. What's that? It's, it's everything that came before in the whole rest of the book. And I can tell you that it combines everything you could possibly need to teach in a church. Talks about the centrality of Jesus Christ as the God who became man, died and rose and ascended for us. Talks about how we should live with each other as people who still have the created order. The distinction between man and woman, father and child. The distinction between government and church. All that's there. Teach and urge these things. But here, just, just for today, let it be the Bible. When Paul says teach and urge these things, he means read your Bible. Know your Bible. If you're anything like I am, was more, but am still, you have this like, I don't know, spiritual hiccup. When you could read your Bible, you kind of think you should read your Bible. You almost want to read your Bible, but it's like there's this invisible war between your hand and your Bible. A little wall there blocking it. You just, I, I don't know. I get it. Let me suggest to you that that is a demonic spiritual darkness that has assaulted our country. And that if we don't fight back against it with some guts, then Christianity will pass on to other places. Now, St. Paul, I know you're here as a people because you want to fight back. You want to fight the good fight. And so, again, it's not about... Can you read the whole Bible in a year? It's not about how much can you get. It's not about can you memorize everything. If you just pick one psalm and pray it every day for a year, that's what I'm talking about. Say it out loud till it's memorized. Get it down in your blood. Have it become one with the way that you think. And like Augustine said a few moments ago, before you know it, it might just fall out of your mouth somewhere else. And that's the glory of the Word of God as the Holy Spirit inspiring you, inhabiting you, making you His temple. Teach and urge these things. Yeah? If anyone teaches a different doctrine, a, a heterodidascale, an other teaching, yeah? and does not agree with the sound words, the word for sound there means healthy, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. The word from the Old Testament for that is he's a fool. 
If anyone comes to the Bible and says, well, I know it says this, but I think that, you know he's a fool. Straight up, he said it himself. Well, I just can't accept this one thing. Okay. I mean, you don't have to tell him he's a fool. Don't answer the fool according to his folly. You might become like him. I mean, that's there in the Proverbs. Again, maybe you should answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That's, That's also there in the Proverbs. The point is for you to know the distinction between a fool and a wise man. And that is one who knows what the Bible says and believes it. And one who doesn't know what the Bible says, or even worse, knows what the Bible says and thinks it's stupid. Such a person is puffed up with conceit. We can say it in one word, right? Proud, arrogant, thinks too highly of himself, and then understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words. You know, what is a woman? We can go back a little further. What, what is a day? Does the word day always mean 24 literal hours? How do you know that the six days of Genesis chapter 1 are real days? You can go back a little further. What does the word is really mean? This is my body. Yeah, I understand, but, but it's a wide word with a lot of diversity. Maybe it's symbolically speaking. Puffed up with an unhealthy craving for arguments about words that a child would understand if the child read it. Watch out for such, he'll say. Let's get more before he says that. Quarrels about words, what's the production of false teaching? When you have words you can't stand on, when you don't know the distinction between a man and a woman, guess what you get? Envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion. Much of that going around these days? I'm not going to blame just the trans movement for that, but let me tell you, the fact that we can't tell truth from falsehood, that we have no idea what light and darkness are anymore, that we want to call evil good and good evil, well, this is what's going to come. Constant friction. Among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. Imagining that godliness is a means for gain. Religion is a way to get something is the end result of this. Now, to be sure, he's going to say this in a moment. You ask for wisdom, you're going to get something. But if you're only going to ask for wisdom because you know that God gave Solomon money after Solomon asked for wisdom, you're getting it all backwards, right? It's not about getting something. It's about being redeemed. It's about being born again. And that's not about me. It's about us. And it's about him. He is the giver who constantly gives. So to be redeemed into him is to become like him. One who doesn't think so much about self, but thinks about the other. Sees the need. And knows with certainty that all your needs are cared for by him. As opposed to what you definitely have seen in the Christian church in the last 40 years in America, leading up to our complete apostasy in the last three years, what you've seen in the Christian church is them selling Jesus like a toaster oven who's going to bring you better toast. Try Jesus for 30 days, see if your life doesn't get better. And we got mega churches all over the country with great rock shows to convince you this works, and they've stolen people from all the little churches that are now closing. And now those big churches are starting to fall apart because they would rather tell you to wear masks than to tell you that Jesus has risen from the dead. 
And it's only a matter of time until I tell you none of them are open and they all are turned into restaurants and banks. Have you noticed? Have you not seen it? You should visit the East Coast sometime. They're ahead of us on these things. Imagining that godliness is a means of gain is the problem. It's not about gain. It's about wisdom. It's about seeing. It's about love. He says in verse 6, godliness with contentment is great gain. I would amend the way that's read there a little bit. There is great gain in godliness. You know what the gain is? Contentment. When you know you are justified by Jesus Christ's blood and that nothing can take this from you, you get out of that, that loop of always kind of questioning whether or not Jesus loves you and believe. In fact, oh, he baptized me. He chose me. He he rose from the dead for me and you. There is nothing that can condemn us now. Guess what results? It's the inkling of contentment that once you taste it, you can start to grab it. And that's what I'm asking you to do it today again. I know you're here because you taste it. Now can you grab it? Can you shove it in front of your face every day? Can you teach yourself and train yourself to remember these things and the trials and the temptations and the storms of life when they come? Contentment is a greater gain than money. If you're content, it doesn't matter how much money you have. Have a lot of money, be content. Have a little money, be content. Godliness, knowing God is your God and has chosen you in Jesus Christ, brings with it great contentment. All right, for he talks about the reality. Here's the wisdom in this. We brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. All the things you save and store up and claim to own or need to experience, it's all wind and dust. But you're not just wind and dust. You are a high creature of God, an everlasting soul embodied, and an image of God, the man, Jesus Christ now. So all the other stuff is is nothing compared to you because of your connection to Jesus. So since you know this, since you know it's all going to burn anyway, right? How much do you really need? That's true wisdom. Now, of course, I want you to think about this as you think about what you're going to give in the coming year at St. Paul. But it's not a strong arm. I really, more important to me than anything that you give is the freedom of conscience and the contentedness to know that all you have was given to you. You can't give it away enough that God won't give you more. Ultimately. All you have is given, and he's going to take care of you. I want you to have that certainty as you walk about this world where you watch our country eat itself to death and be fearless and know that you're not going to be eaten to death. Even if they all do turn into zombies and eat you, you're just going to rise again from the dead. I want that to be your heartbeat so that you can just have food and clothing. That's enough. That's enough for today, and I don't think anyone in this room is in danger of not having food and clothing. Tell me if I'm wrong after the service. I'll apologize. I don't think so. Those who desire to be rich, that's most of us, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The issue is not the money. The issue is the worship of the money. 
And the worship of the money is the belief that you can outwit God tomorrow. You don't know what's coming tomorrow, but if you have more money, you can stop God from doing anything too bad to you. That's the problem. The hunger for wealth is the hunger to control God's future. God makes people rich all the time. Sometimes he does it to punish them, to give them over to their debased mind, to do things that ought not to be done, to destroy themselves and their families. Sometimes he gives people wealth in order to share it with others. He gives a wise man the ability to be wiser still by seeing how little it's worth anything and to give it away. Investing not in this life, but in the treasures of heaven that are the reality of you, believers in Christ. The desire to be rich itself is the thing we want to fight against. And so as you make your devotional commitment this week, before you think about the money, just ask Jesus to give you contentment with what you got. To stop thinking you need more. That alone is peace today. Today. For, and he quotes Jesus here, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Um, you know, I, 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 I've already wasted three seconds deciding whether I should say this, so I'll say it. Um, it. It is not the root of all evil. That's the way it's quoted. If you hear it on TV, they'll say money, the love of money is the root of all evil. It never says that. It says it's the root of lots of evil. The root of all evil is unbelief which shows itself forward as pride. And then the love of money comes from that unbelief, again, as I said a moment ago, trying to control tomorrow. But then all kinds of other evils come from the hunger for money. And, and in the Old Testament especially, uh, they, will, they will talk in the way that those who are hungering for wealth are violent people. They do violence. They shed blood. And you might think, well, well where's the bloodshed? And, well, <coughs> excuse me. In our day and age, the bloodshed is always far away. It's out of sight. Is on some other shore where we pillage and take what we can or keep them in their situation or, or maybe support some other government to take out their government. There's all sorts of ways that we maintain what we have now by violence elsewhere and just turning a blind eye to it. Or you can even think about, I suppose this is kind of the same thing, and I know, St. Paul, I'm not trying to accuse you directly. We got the homeless bags. I ask you to take one, give one away when you see someone so you don't have to drive by and avert your eyes from their suffering. But to avert eyes from suffering, that is to do violence. Yeah. And why would I not give $5 to that man who's asking for it? Well, of course, I don't want him to buy more crack. But I also don't want to give up the 5 bucks now, do I? And I love that money a little too much. Yeah. So own this statement. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and the wisdom is to see how much it's in us and ask God to take it from us. Because we can know that through this craving, that's, that's the love of money there, craving, discontent, jealousy, covetousness, ninth and 10th commandments. Through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. It's possible to lose your faith. It really is. It doesn't happen overnight, usually. Happens over time. It's a slow drift. It's leaven in the lump. And as he says right here, well, the way that you lose your faith is you decide that this world is worth more than the next. And you follow that path long enough, and one day you just don't believe anymore. Is a day really 24 hours? Is a woman really a woman? Is a, is a resurrection literal? Isn't it just a story about how much God loves people? Plenty of Christians have ended up there. Maybe some of your friends and neighbors even. No? 
not you. That's what it says here. Not you. As for you, man of God, own that. Own that. You're a man of God, you ladies too. You're a man of God. You're bought with Jesus Christ's blood. You're inside his body. He is the God who is man. Doesn't mean male and female are gone, but it means that you should embrace everything that you are and stand firm with conviction in it. Huh? As for you, man of God, flee these things. Run away. Run away from the love of money. Run away from cravings. Run away from those who would teach a different doctrine than the Bible teaches. Run away from those things and pursue righteousness. Now, the word here in the Greek is a word that is very connected to the word righteousness in the Hebrew that shows up with great regularity, including in our reading from 1 Kings this morning, where Solomon talks about how David walked in righteousness. That word, zedek, in the Hebrew, I think is best understood by the English word accuracy. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in Proverbs, so maybe this is a reminder for you here, but accuracy. If you think of sin as shooting at a target and missing the target, then righteousness is shooting at the target and hitting it. And here he says, try to hit the target. Pursue righteousness. And there is no greater righteousness than when you're going to come forward here in a moment, kneel or bow and receive the bread and wine that are the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ on your lips. It won't miss. That righteousness will endure. Pursue it. Make it what you believe on purpose. Don't just float in and out every week. Take it with you. Imagine how you walk out with the glowing body of Jesus Christ inside of you. And everywhere you go, you are shimmering light and wonder for the angels that are there to see and rejoice in his holy name and his glorifying of you. See if you can't remember that. And see if it can't come out of your lips sometime later with the words of a psalm or just the word hallelujah. Yeah. Pursue righteousness, godliness, that's going to be about piety. That is devotion, is what he's talking about there. It is about having a mind that thinks about higher things. Pursue godliness, faith, that's trust. Pursue trust in Jesus. Not about you, it's about Jesus for you. Pursue love, that's, that's about your neighbor. That's about all those around you who don't deserve mercy, who you show mercy to anyway. Because you're like your father in heaven. And pursue steadfastness. That's truth, right? That's not being able to be moved. Not on the things that matter. Not on the things that matter. To have honor is to have things you would never do. And to have things you will always do. That's honor. Pursue that. Know what you would never do. Know what you will always do. Guide those things by the word of Jesus. And then gentleness. I guess you could probably accuse me of being pretty weak on that one. In my own experience, that's how I feel. Gentleness. That is to be true without being hurtful. It's tough. It doesn't mean be soft. It doesn't mean give up truth. But it does mean to kind of combine mercy and truth in one reality. Pursue that. And then verse 12, I love this verse. Fight the good fight. Wage the good or the beautiful even. Wage the beautiful war. Get in the game. Right? I mean, I, golly. I haven't watched much sports for some time now, although I've been 
I've been frequenting Rudy's cigars a little more than I, I was recently. I don't, I don't know if any of you ever go there, but they always got the ESPN on. There's a sports going. And so I'm, I'm seeing some stuff. I saw the Padres play a little bit. I saw that Chicago was going to play this week, not having such a great week in the football or year in the football for Chicago. Better than Washington, though, right? Um, so so I'm seeing these things. And, and it's not that they're bad. What I can't get over is how much commitment we have to this stuff, which is as passing and fleeting as anything, because as soon as the game's over, as soon as the trophy's put away, it's done. Who won three years ago in all the sports? Who knows? Well, somebody, but not most people. Why? Because it's just nothing. It's air. The game is the resurrection of a single man as the king of an everlasting country that is here now as an assault on the present darkness inside of you, in your body, in your mind, as your soul. I'm not saying you can't watch the sports. I'm saying think about what a better game we have. Get in it. Choose to. Yeah? Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold, seize, grab the eternal life to which you were called. This is not telling you you can save yourself. This is telling you now that you're saved, know it. See it, believe it, act on it. Yeah? I, one good way, an image to think about salvation is like a, a, a cart and a horse. And we do not participate in salvation like a horse pulling a cart. We more are like someone who's sitting in the cart, being pulled by the horse, but the cart's still going somewhere. And you can stand up and look around. You can even cheer on what's going on. You can take the reins if you want to. Now, the horse won't let you go off the wrong way, but you can, you can encourage, jump on it, believe it, right? Now, again, the, all analogies break down, but what I want you to see here is don't just lie in the cart. Stand up and believe. I'm going somewhere with Jesus. I'm going to grab it. I'm going to seize this idea, this knowledge, this wisdom to which you were called. This is what he's called. He's, he's doing this. He's chasing you with this. He's pouring it into you. And about which, now he says to Timothy, you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. This probably is about Timothy's ordination. But I know that all of you here, one way or another, stood in front of a congregation, if not this congregation, and said, I believe the Bible's true. You said, I believe the small catechism confesses what the Bible says. You said, I believe in the creeds. You just did it this morning. You said, I believe in the Father. You've made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Yeah. So then, hear what he says in verse 13. As being all the more about you, I charge you. Is Paul teaching justification by works? No. But he is teaching that we are here and we are saved. And that means something. So he says, I charge you. It's not an option. I charge you in the presence of God. He's going to call two people to witness in the charge. So we're going to get to the charge in a moment. But he calls the witness God who gives life to all things. And Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Right. So just as you know that God is the creator of all things. Just as you know that Jesus Christ confessed and did not deny anything as he stood before Pilate. But gladly went to the cross. So I charge you, verse 14, to keep the commandment 
unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Keep the commandment unstained. You can do two things with that. You can go super pious Lutheran on it and say, oh, that's the Ten Commandments. I can't do that. I'm sinful and unclean. I can't possibly keep the commandment unstained. Okay, you're right, but that's not what he's talking about. The other thing is you can hear what he just said. Teach and urge these things. Love what the Bible says and make that what you do. Keep that unstained. Love what the Bible says until Jesus comes back. And yes, if you put your heart and mind to it, are you going to fail? Yes. That's not, it's, it's, he's not trying to do a theological game with you, though. He wants you to say, oh, Jesus has told me that I need to hold tight to what he gave me. I will. By his grace. By his power. Not of my own accord, but I will not walk away. I will not forget. At the very least, I'm going to pray God won't let me forget. Right? Ask, and you shall receive. I charge you, keep the commandment unstained. Jesus Christ coming again. He will display this at the proper time. That's verse 15. And there's a doxology in verses uh, 15 and 16. And it calls Jesus a whole number of things. The blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. And now we have this kind of merging of the Father and the Son here a little bit because we get into the Father who dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. And Well, I think we all know some people have seen Jesus, so he's moved on to the Father there at that point. But the point is to know that behind all of this, is it you, but the Father who created you, the Son who redeemed you, and that this is the work of the Spirit to sanctify, to set you apart. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. We've got plenty of time here. We're going to continue on and, and finish the chapter at least. He goes back to money in verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, he means Christians. As for the Christians who have money in this present age. And one of the toughest things I think right now for us as, as American Christians is that on the one hand, we're un. It's made up a word, unridiculously. We, we are unbelievably, ridiculously rich. You got running water in your house. You know how many people in history have had running water in their house? You don't have to build a fire to cook. You just turn on the gas. I know the price is going up. It ain't fair what they're doing. But golly, we are wealthy beyond measure. And yet you do feel how it's kind of slipping away too, right? Things are costing a whole lot more than they used to. And maybe you've done some digging and you kind of know why, and that makes you angry too. So in one sense, we're, we're poor. You're not rich. You know, I don't, I don't think anyone here today has a private jet. Yeah. Uh, maybe you got a nice extra car in the garage, but yeah, not, not all of us, right? So... So what do we do with this? Those of you who are rich, I, I think on the one hand, you just have to acknowledge how good you got it. And then acknowledge that, you know, you didn't, you didn't get it yourself. And hear what he says about money in general. Let those who are rich in the present age charge them not to be haughty. That's the real point. Whatever you got in your pocketbook proves nothing about you. All it proves is that you were lucky. You can say, well, I worked hard for that. I'm sure you did. 
You know what? Other people worked hard. They don't got what you got. So how to get there? Right time, right place. Did you do that? Nope, you didn't. No, it was given. It's all given. You don't even have to be a Christian to think this. This is just statistics. So don't be haughty. Nothing wrong with the money. Nothing wrong with the nice house. What's wrong is thinking you're a better person because you got it. And then there's the folly of when you don't have it, envying the people who have it as if somehow they deserve it. You don't. You did something wrong to be where you are. That's haughtiness too. Charge those who are rich in the present age not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Easy come, easy go. And the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And who knows whether tomorrow the dollar will be worth anything, or gold, or Bitcoin. If all the power goes out, you'll want water more than you want anything else. It all has to do with what God decides to bring tomorrow, and the author of that future is not you and your efforts, but him. And the wisdom to know that and then believe he's going to take care of you. I mean, that's again, that's great contentment, even in the midst of great catastrophe. Huh? Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Notice, though, it's, it's not about austerity. He's not saying, well, if you got money, you should give it all away. Go sit on a mountaintop, stare at the dust. That's real righteousness. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not what he's saying. What you have is given to enjoy. Have you learned the joy of sharing? Have you seen the good of sacrifice? Have you come to believe that it's not about you? And again, the promise from Jesus is you're going to get there. You'll see it. That's why he saved you. He didn't save you not to show you this. He saved you to show you this, to make you like him. So be rich in good works, verse 18. Do good. Pursue righteousness, yeah? What's good? What's evil? Ah, that's Solomon's prayer. Make me have a listening heart to know the difference between good and evil that I might pursue good. And of course, you know that Solomon didn't always pursue good. And I'll tell you that happened so you could see the lesson today. So you could know. Oh, look how easy it is for the glory and power to be something I think is about me. And then again, look how the man who had that happen turned around and wrote a book like the Proverbs to emphasize the things that never change. So that at the end of this, I mean, again, devotional commitment, I'm just imploring you and I apologize if I'm beating the dead horse too much, but get wisdom today, my friends. Get it. Ask for it. Pick one of those little things and do it in the firm conviction that it's going to bear fruit you can't imagine. It's going to extend your mind and heart before God in ways that will explode into the goodness of those around you. Huh? Be rich in good works. Be generous, ready to share. Verse 19, thus storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future. That's not about how if I give this much money to the church, I'll get my indulgence and the treasury of merits can put me with some extra anti-purgatory power after I die. He's just talking about how if you learn to be content, you got the treasure already. I mean, what is it about paradise, heaven, the life of the world to come, that you think is going to be so great? I mean, is it the football games? What's going to be so great? You're going to be content. That's what's going to be so great. That whatever it is, whatever we do, you're going to be content. Well, guess what? You don't have to wait till then to hunger 
and grow in contentment. Yeah? You can store up the treasure of contentedness right now. That's a good foundation for the future. So that they may, you may take hold of that which is truly life. The word of God, you may hear it and keep it. Oh, Timothy, he says, verse 20. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. What's that deposit? Uh, It is the word of God. It is the Holy Spirit inside of you as well. It is both of those things. He says to Timothy, guard it. Is he teaching works righteousness? No. He's talking to the saved who know that they're saved. And he's saying you've been saved to live. So live. Don't wallow in the muck with those who have no hope. Stand amongst the ruins of the world with a confidence that this world may end in flame and misfortune, but you will not. And that at the right time, God will send his angels to brighten your way. Always. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Take your faith seriously. Get in the game. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. I am science, you know, and that kind of thing. Science isn't bad. Studying nature isn't bad. But if science over the last 500 years teaches us anything, is that the scientists are wrong a lot. And the more wrong they are, the more they insist they're right and don't let you ask questions. Don't get involved, at least. Don't let it sway you from what the Bible says. When the American Medical Association says that boys and girls don't exist, they're wrong. They're wrong. Science. Falsely called knowledge. By the way, science is the word knowledge in Old French. That's how you say knowledge. Science. So I believe in science. Oh, you believe in knowledge. You're so smart. I believe in knowledge too. Okay, fine. Big deal. I believe in God. He is risen. Hallelujah. That's not falsely called knowledge. That's called truth. By professing false knowledge, some have served for the, from the faith. Um, that, that is how you fall away. You replace the words of the Bible with the words of man. Yeah. Grace be with you, he says. A, a common greeting, but don't miss the word grace. I pray that in this, as I'm trying to just yank on your heartstrings and beg you almost to take a step into the Psalms and Proverbs this year, if not something else. In this, I have not in any way shamed you or made you carry guilt or convinced you you haven't done enough. That's not the point. Jesus got you. What I want is for St. Paul to gather around this Bible like it were the football. Eh? Grab that thing tight and make a run for the end zone for the rest of as long as we possibly can, knowing that Jesus is the wind behind us. And that nothing Nothing can take that away. In the name of Jesus, amen.